We touched a bit on the wisdom of God last week, and here it certainly seems appropriate that we would look at the subject matter of the wisdom of God, of God's wisdom as compared to man's wisdom. We see that here in chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. We also see it shows up in a number of other places. Uh, Lord willing, I will also address the, the end of chapter 4 as well. And I'm helped a bit this morning with Leon Morris, a very faithful commentator. And uh, he, he indicates that the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure, surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law, but his own desires. This was the characteristic of the Corinthian. I pray that that seems very familiar to you, because that is very much associated with our own culture and society. Uh, This simple idea that the individual uh, is the center point of all of our lives, Uh, that, uh, you know, the entire world is our oyster, so to speak, and it's our job to crack it open and find the pearl. Every idea, every decision that other people make, we fixate on what that looks like from our own center point, instead of thinking the thoughts of God after Him and understanding the ways and the Word of God. And so the wisdom of God here, as compared to the wisdom of man, is a particular importance to a body of believers. And the reality is that the Apostle Paul addressed his letter not to unbelievers, but to believers To believers that, as mentioned in chapter 3 of this letter, were not ready for anything but the basics of the Christian faith. They could only take in milk. But the issue here is that the Corinthians didn't, didn't wrangle about justification by faith in Christ. They didn't wrangle, apparently, about the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, His substitutionary work in His life and death. That wasn't the issue. But nonetheless, the Corinthians uh, had significant division amongst them because they couldn't agree because they didn't understand aspects about the wisdom of God. Christ is also, of course, referred to as the wisdom of God here. The revealed truth, which we don't understand, is still truth. Believing it as the wisdom of God, unfiltered through the preconceived, fallible human ideologies, is yet the truth. While the Corinthians weren't arguing about the basics of salvation, they were quite confident in their grasp of living the Christian life in their city, which boasted in the triumph of the individual, although they didn't agree, apparently, on a number of things involving their own life in Christ. 
It is true there's the possibility of division with disagreement based on distinctions between that which is man's wisdom. Fleshly, uninformed by the word of God and God's wisdom, which is by nature mocked by the world. There is a common tendency to reduce the facts of the Christian faith to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there is this idea that if we can only focus on those few things, that all will be well. But that creates a significant problem for a people that are actually growing together in faith, right? As we're sanctified in Christ, the reality is as we do grow, as it were, higher up and higher in, we're more deeply understanding the things of God as we uh, take to ourselves hearts that become more tender day by day and that are in turn informed by some of the intricacies of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives through the Scriptures. And that reveals distinctions of where we are. we can perhaps take a hard look at our own fellowship and consider those who have left, we would have to admit that they have left because they don't agree with what the confession reveals, as is the wisdom of God. And so unless we can agree on those things that are the wisdom of God, then we either stop growing and agree to be shallow, or we agree to commit ourselves to what we're persuaded and those who've gone before us were persuaded is the revealed orthodox understanding, not only of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but how to take communion, how to raise your family, how to, how to be a mother or a father, how a husband is to love his wife, how to invest yourself in mission endeavors, and these sorts of things. What to think of the Scriptures, of all of the Scriptures. And this is what the Apostle is getting at here with the Corinthian church. It seems that some spend their time sort of thinking that those who are involved in the depths of Bible study are in fact wasting their time. Or they're only trying to put forward their own thoughts, express certain measures of leadership, gain those who follow their way of thinking because of their own sinful desires. All of these things are brought up in the letter. There are people who pervert biblical leadership. There are people who, through their pride, desire to gather to themselves followers. But there's no reason for us to mistake the reality that they're not called of God. Their actions confirm. The issues addressed in the letter were all informed by distinctions between man's wisdom and God's. Consider some of these aspects brought up in the letter and think about them in terms of man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Spiritual gifts, leadership and direction, teaching offered in the church and its depth, the impact of how I live now on eternity, 
my view of faithful ministers and how the church should treat them, expressions and thoughts regarding sexuality, including what will be considered immoral, dealing with disagreements between members, principles of marriage and divorce, decisions regarding all sorts of vocations, how best to guide and care for widows, cutting through cultural mores to find appropriate biblical principles for application, how believers should limit expressions of their God-given freedom for the sake of others, how to think about and receive the Lord's Supper, principles of worship, the impact of the resurrection of Christ on our daily lives and eternity, instructions on giving, and how to carry out mission endeavors. These are all handled in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And they are all touched and impacted by the simple concept of distinguishing between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Again, we, if we simplify the Word of God and basically parrot what many in our society, albeit perhaps well-meaning, say that the only thing that matters is that Jesus is my Savior and all else is fluff. It doesn't matter. And I think, I think the idea, again, is to somehow elevate the sweetness and the centrality of the Lord Jesus, but nonetheless... We, we have lives to live, and all of our life, every moment, is yet informed by the Word of God. Such that we can delight ourselves in our God. It's not about being shackled in drudgery. It's about how to live life joyfully on this earth with all of its challenges and difficulties, God wrote His Word to an imperfect people that live in an imperfect place. And it is in that context that His Word will make all of the difference in the world for His people. And it's a distinction between what it is that the Lord is saying, how to apply it. Now, let's consider... What the Apostle says to the Corinthians here, let's look at the verses beginning in verse 18. The word of the cross. The word of the cross. This includes both the matter and the manner of the way that the Apostle Paul was shown by the Lord Jesus Christ to speak the truth. In other words, what is the word of the cross? It is about, it is about the God-man who came to earth to his own possession, was largely rejected by them, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death on the cross, and was resurrected. That's, that's the matter of the cross, and the manner of speaking was that of simplicity, in complete contrast to the sophistication of the Greeks, and also rejecting this sort of miraculous kingly reign on earth in order to trounce all of the enemies of the Jewish state that the Jews expected. In their worldly wisdom, they see nothing but foolishness in the preaching of the cross, and the simplicity of the message is to them something to disdain as they are enamored with complicated, lofty wisdom. There is a contrast here, even in this verse, between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. There's only two groups of people. 
The only two groups. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And again, while the Corinthian church understands the very basics, the Apostle Paul still levies upon them the appropriate charge of their fleshliness because of their quarreling and disagreements about a number of things, all of which include an understanding of the wisdom of God. The perishing have a disdain for the simple explanations of the Bible. And the crucifixion of the Son of God is utterly ridiculous to them. Anything for them in the category of learning and wisdom must have the mark of sophistication, of science, of popular agreement, and must have the marks of human origin. The redeemed embrace the simplicity of revelation. They affirm their critical need of a Savior. They have real shame for their previous design for God's wisdom. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. And we may expect Paul to mention that. But he doesn't bring that about as the opposite. What does the Apostle Paul say in this passage of Scripture is the alternative to the wisdom of man? It's right here in verse 18. It's the power of God. It's the power of God. And even in this passage, and we can perhaps consider other passages in the Bible, but nonetheless, even in this passage, we see that the personification of wisdom is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the wisdom of God? Well, we could, we could point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would be having a correct answer, no doubt. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom, and we may expect Paul to mention that. But instead, he mentions something like in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Verse 19, a quote from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul isn't saying anything new here. Those who are paying attention to the Scriptures should have already realized that one of God's purposes as the people of God moved on in this life, marking off the time of days and years and so forth, was that He would make the proud humble. And that He would bring to nothing the wisdom of man. Psalm 33.10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing He frustrates the plans of the people. What do you think about the fact that the Almighty personal God intends to crush your pride to powder? He intends to crush your thoughts about fleshly wisdom to powder. He intends to reveal that it is meaningless. He purposes to do that. Because He set before us that which is beautiful. That which is accessible to His people, the wisdom of God. 
He sets before us instructions on how to live. He promises us a heart that can be changed and inclined to that which is right and true. As we've noticed, as we've noticed, uh, as we've considered biblical parenting, we see and we will look, Lord willing, this morning at this idea of the spirit of a child that has to be dealt with because their inclinations are in opposition to the revealed truth of God. They, they, they choose the wrong way and delight themselves in that which is filthy and wrong. And we must all admit that to some degree we have the same residue even in our own minds. And that God's intent as He works in our lives and brings to us the wisdom of God that we will more and more delight in that which is good and true. The Apostle asks the question here, where is the one who is wise? In verse 20, where is the philosopher? Philosophy has made great strides in the Christian faith. not a commendation. Where's the scribe? Where's the scholar, he says? Where's the debater of this age? This age. The transitory nature of human wisdom. The reference here, this idea of this age. Where we're living right now. What is popular today? The Apostle Paul understood that man's wisdom is transitory. Even the foolish things that people so committed themselves to 200 years ago have been revealed to be utter folly. Not so with the Word of God. As a matter of fact, it seems that every day we seem to validate the factual aspects of the Word of God, the historical record and so forth. The world is but a passing show, and its wisdom will pass with it. Consider the far-reaching entrenchment of evolution in this present age. The foolishness of the world. The application of marketing techniques to evangelism in the church. Utter folly. Imagine the incredible, breathtaking confidence that I will create a marketing campaign and treat the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as an advertising agent with a billboard. The concept that low self-esteem is the common cause of immoral actions in humans. The notion that the gender in which God has created us is transitory and changeable. The idea that every religious path leads to salvation and eternal life with God. Human wisdom. The idea that God most desires my happiness on this sinful earth, in my sinful flesh. That He exists primarily to give me things and looks away with ambivalence when I sin against him. These are the ideas of man. And they've carried tremendous weight through the years. But they're utterly entrenched in the wisdom of man. The philosophy that humans are advanced beyond the so-called primitive explanations of man. 
which included a sovereign God who was active in this world. Those of you that have studied the Second World War will recognize that what was called the myth of progress had a huge impact on the nations involved in that war. The myth of progress. This foolish, man-centered idea that man was so sophisticated that he would never need to fight a war again. It's utter folly. And it's based on fleshly wisdom. The rejection of the supernatural and miraculous on the grounds that it's scientifically impossible. The insistence that explanations about the historical record of the Bible fit into currently culturally accepted mores. The idea that my actions and my feelings are primarily the result of the mixture, production, and exchange of chemicals in my body and that I have no real control over them. You might want to laugh at that idea, uh, this idea that my body is made up, is totally physical, there is no non-physical in my body, and that it is made up of chemicals which collide with one another moment by moment, and that I actually have little control over them. And if you would laugh at that, you should also know that the primary, vast majority of the scientists that would deal with the care of individuals are completely committed to that falsehood. And they've invested millions and trillions of dollars, years upon years of their lives, committed to this idea. And they want to provide for you counsel and wisdom on how to live. When they reject the very concept of a non-physical soul in an individual. The descriptions of normal family life in the Bible are merely cultural and are not to be considered as models for modernity. Again, human folly. This idea, lastly, that there really is little more necessary to know about God in the Bible other than John 3.16. The rest is fluff and has no impact on how I live now or in eternity. And one of the aspects of the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of man that we see in this small passage of Scripture, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, you'll notice the word shame. Shame is brought up in verse 27. It's incredibly difficult to destroy the misappropriated confidence man has in his own flesh. Misappropriated confidence that man has in his own flesh. To learn more about the distinctions of God's wisdom and man's wisdom... If we are, in fact, learning about those things and appropriating them for ourselves, we would begin more and more to be ashamed of our commitment to man's wisdom. And one of the things that you have heard me repeat a number of times, what I have referred to as among the cultural sins of the state of Texas and this inherent pride is this idea. We confidently go a hundred miles an hour past God's wisdom and make excuses 
for our commitment to that which is fool's gold. God has made foolish the wisdom of this age. I want you to look at verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What is he saying? He's saying, look, it is the nature of man to purchase all of the stock that he can in that which is man's wisdom. And what God is saying is, is that is that I, God, am continually in the process of devaluing your stock. And so you should sell it as quickly as you can. And invest yourself in man's wisdom. He is making it foolish. He is in the process of revealing through His Word Day by day, the utter folly of man's wisdom. He is making it foolish. And this is, this is a very important idea about the wisdom of God. As we would embrace and commit ourselves to the full orb truth, the comprehensive nature of the Word of God. God has made, wis- made foolish the wisdom of the world. If you're committed to the wisdom of the world... I'm just giving you all the investment information and counsel that I can give you. It's a sinking ship. It is being made cheaper and cheaper by the day by our God. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. I'm going to give you a little test to see how entrenched you are or how much at least you understand the culture. I'm going to begin a sentence and I want you to finish it. It's only one word. Knowledge is... Knowledge is power. That's right. Do you think that affects you? Do you think that gets inside... Your OODA loop, as it were. I should take a minute and describe exactly what I mean by OODA loop. It's a military term. It's an acronym. It means observe, orient, decide, and act. Observe, orient, decide, act. It's how your brain works. If you're committed to this idea that knowledge is power, then you're persuaded that you can actually educate yourself into the kingdom of God. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that our God has decided that while man is committed to this notion, you'll not get to redemption in that way. 
It'll be a futile process. By the wisdom of man, man cannot know God. And now, if you're thinking at this moment that the pastor just told me that I never need to learn anything again, then you would also be desperately wrong. But we understand that it is God who comes to us and gives to us faith. And that we come to God not on our terms, but on His terms. God in His wisdom has decided to save people by way of the cross in no other way. What the world rejects is foolish. God is used to bring redemption. He'll not accommodate the musings of the proud. He crushes the wisdom of man to powder. The Lord Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For a people that worship strength, that's hard. For people that worship knowledge, that's hard. Because when I come to the Lord Jesus, I have to admit that I'm nothing. That I'm lost, I'm undone. That I'm weak. That I'm foolish. There's no other way. And it's not about an unnecessary humbling, either. It's a large dose of reality. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We've discussed this. The apostle brings out here the unique characteristics of two nations. The Jews had little use for speculative thought. They prioritized the practical evidence. They primarily thought of God as performing mighty wonders. And they insisted on seeing those wonders. The Greeks were completely enamored with speculative philosophy and they looked down on all who failed to appreciate their wisdom. One of the things that I first encountered with some of the seminary students here when I came to Fort Worth was this this involvement, this insistence on speculative theology. They love to talk. Now what I tended to tell them is, if you can tell me why that matters on Monday, then I'll begin to talk with you about it. Folly. The foolishness of man. We're not immune to these inclinations, whether appreciating sophisticated arguments to step away from the clear teaching of the Scripture, demanding a miracle in my life to confirm Christ. Again, I mean, some of us, we we demand a sophisticated argument, right? The simplicity of it turns us off. Or there are some people that say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus when he, He lights up a fire in front of me. Or when He makes time stand still, or when He, whatever it is. But Paul insists we preach Christ. Verse 23, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
What the Jews and Gentiles reject is utter foolishness. We proclaim I think we shouldn't miss the Apostle's point here. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 1 Peter 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the point here is simply that he's saying, look, not only am I not ashamed of this, but now it's time to go public. No, we glory in a crucified Savior. We proclaim Christ. That's the idea. It's the very alternative to this quiet shaming, this idea that no, 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 no. No, we proclaim Christ. Charles Spurgeon had a crest on it. It says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. For all to see, we're committed to the truth revealed in the Bible that our life is associated with the death of the God-man. And it's a carrying on of this principle of crucifixion that we can live by. Some Bible students are a little concerned in this translation, stumbling block to Jews in 23. They say that perhaps a closer approximation to the meaning there would be death trap. In other words, the Jews were so committed to an unbiblical version of Messiah that there was no way they could get beyond the crucifixion. It was a death trap to them. Game over. A fatal challenge for them. But we know that God did save some of the Jews, of course. Verse 24, to those called, those effectually called, we could say, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The biblical opposite of man's wisdom, the saving power of God, Jesus Christ. It says, look here. Look at this. Look at this wisdom of God. You know, you Corinthians know, you who have been called, effectually called, you who are redeemed, you know. You're not, not yet ready for anything beyond milk, but nonetheless, you know. You know about this power. He says, look at yourselves. In verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Boy, that's laying it all out on the table. (laughs) How would you think if the Apostle Paul said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He was talking about the Corinthians, by the way. Look at yourselves. Have you come to the point where you can affirm with the Apostle Paul, yeah, I'm a fool to the world. I'm a fool to the world. The world looks at me and laughs. They mock Christ. 
Paul says, but it's the power of God. You know. Look at yourselves. But he goes on, the idea here, we can't consider our own earthly simplicity as somehow preferable. In other words, the Apostle Paul wasn't saying, and sometimes it's easy to get this idea, uh, that uh, that those who are simple and earthy uh, have somehow have an advantage that they're somehow preferable, that they're a beauty spot in the eyes of God, that that their sinful characteristics are more preferable to, to God. And some are happy to use that as an excuse to go no further in the Gospel. But we're guilty. And we still need the Holy Spirit to tear down barriers. Because it's opposed to the wisdom of the world, it doesn't mean that it isn't rich and deep. And this is one of the tricky things about going deeper and further into the ways of God because we understand we come to Christ as a child. But the point isn't childish. The point is as a child. The idea here is that we have faith. We actually believe what God says is true. That's the idea in childish, or excuse me, childlike faith. We believe what God has said. We accept it. We receive it. We don't make excuses. We don't deny it. We don't defend our own understanding and so forth as opposed to the wisdom of Christ. We say, yes, Lord, you got me. The fact that fishermen were entrusted as proclaimers has more to do with their conquered pride and teachableness than to condemn the message of the cross as something that isn't profound, comprehensive, and far-reaching. This is important for us. You say, well, why did, why, why did the angels entrust, entrust the truths of the incarnation to the shepherds out in the field? They had a bad reputation. Why was it fishermen that he chose? Primarily, as his apostles. It must be because because the message actually is degraded. It's simplistic. But we know the truths of the Bible, as some have described it. A child can wade in its waters, and an elephant can't touch the bottom of its deep end. Verses 27 through 31, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So I think it's appropriate that we ask ourselves the question because we do entangle again as God's people with what is the wisdom of God applied to this situation? How am I yet continually being drugged down by the wisdom of man, by my own habits, by my own inclinations, by the way that I was raised, by the way that I want to defend my actions, by the way that I want to reduce, for instance... uh, these matters that the Bible makes important. 
because of my oversimplification of the truths of God. The Bible says here that God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. That is, He chose the foolishness of the cross to shame the philosophers and those that would demand a sign, but He has also chosen us as His people. He's called us to Himself, and we also will be seen as foolish in the eyes of the world. The question that I have for you today is, are you content with being a fool in the eyes of the world? Are you actually ashamed of your attachment to worldly wisdom? This doesn't, should not persuade you that you need to begin to act like a clumsy moron. But the point is, as we more deeply embrace the truths of God, as we more fully look at every aspect of our lives and the ways that God's wisdom affects and informs what it is we do on Monday and Tuesday, right? Then we will see that the world will stand in opposition and it becomes hard for us to say, well, the Scriptures have shown me this and and I'm persuaded this is the right way to live, and I've seen the Lord work in this, and, and this is goodness, and I want to invite you to that. Is that what it sounds like to you, or, or is it kind of like this? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a silly old thing, but, you know, it's just what we do. Do you boast not merely in Christ as Redeemer, but do you make much of His wisdom in the Bible? Are you trying to be wise in the world and strong in the world? Our culture worships knowledge and strength. We worship knowledge and strength. And the only thing we have left in Western society is power. That's it. That's why the old moniker, knowledge is power, that's the point. The end is power. It's a horrifyingly sinful perversion. But nonetheless, that is all that's left, it seems, of Western society. Are you willing to be considered a fool in the eyes of the world? Are you willing to be considered weak? When the Apostle Paul addresses this idea in chapter 4, He says in verse 12, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. That was weakness to the world. To repent is weakness to the world. How many of you have repented of something to an unbeliever and they they kind of make a mockery of you? Yeah, whatever. Whatever. Some in the Corinthian church looked down on Paul because he didn't speak the truths of Christ in the form of man's wisdom. He spoke plainly, without sophistication. They didn't like that about Paul. Now, as we look at the last part of chapter 4, 
Well, it's not the last part, actually. It's the middle part. Chapter 4, verses 8 to 13. We also have these ideas of wisdom addressed, particularly in relation to the Apostle Paul and his co-workers. The Corinthians were ashamed of Paul and the servants of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. This, by the way, I would encourage you to have the beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit to coordinate with what the Apostle Paul is accusing the Corinthians, right? The situation here is that God's wisdom is that what is attractive and the realities of mankind, that which we would understand is that we, in fact, are poor in spirit. The idea is that we have strivings to go. There are places for us to yet go further up and further in, as it were, with the gospel for us to learn to walk with the Lord, to enjoy greater levels of holiness and greater levels of relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His people. But the Apostle So Paul is reporting that the Corinthians, what do they say about this? Hey, we got it. We'll take it from here. We got all we want. As a matter of fact, we don't even need you or your teachers because we've grown up our own. And they're sophisticated teachers. And they are sharp and the world seems to like them. They considered themselves no longer in need of outside teachers, considered themselves kings reigning. He says, without us, you've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. This is, by the way, sarcasm and irony on the part of the Apostle Paul. In their minds, they could embrace Christ and His wisdom, yet enjoy a great and respectable relationship with the world. This is the, by the way, the incredible curse of modern evangelicalism. They made a deal with the devil to be considered sophisticated by the world. And they walked away from the wisdom of God. The Corinthians figured, why should they be considered a fool in the eyes of the world like Paul? They could enjoy Christ and be thought wise in the world. Why should they be considered weak in the eyes of the world like Paul by blessing others when reviled or by being dependent on others or working like slaves to support themselves? They could have Christ and be considered strong. So here's the Apostle Paul. He describes himself uh, in chapter 4, verse 1 here as servants. The idea here is under rower. Uh, it's kind of the bottom of the barrel when it comes to the ship shipping industry, by the way. The under rower, of course, is one who is rowing a ship with an oar. And the Apostle Paul describes himself in that way. They look down on Paul because Paul was scrapping it out as a tent maker, a leather worker. He often provided for himself and his own means and so forth. He, he was kind of a scrappy guy. I mean, I don't imagine that he really dressed very well. He gets thrown out of places all the time. 
He's dependent. He's not strong. That's how people write for him sometimes. He can't see very well. That's not strength, man. I want a man. Look down on Paul. While Paul and his fellow workers were considered the scum of the world because of their commitment to Christ, the Corinthians are so wise they could have the accolades of the world and be respected by others in the world. The foolishness of man as compared to the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. It's right here before us, accessible by the power of the Holy Spirit. It absolutely includes the breathtaking facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the facts of the Bible. But all of the facts of the Bible are important, every single one of them. And they're revealed to us, and they will stand in opposition to the wisdom of the world. But we can know this for sure. That stock is devaluing. It's time to sell. Time to sell that old worldly wisdom stock. And invest yourself in the wisdom of God. Its value will only go up. And you'll be safe. Even though you may be thought as a fool, let us pray.